Good morning all, my name's Jeff and I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. What a privilege it is. We can come here freely, read the Bible openly in public and enjoy the benefits of that. Um, <laughs> Kathy is telling us about the Itchavay situation where they've only just got the Bible or some part of the Bible in their language. And there's other parts of the world that don't have that. And there's other parts of the world where to do this would land you in jail and worse. So we are very thankful that we can read God's word. And I'll get on with it now. <laughs> we are reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to 18. And it's on page 1050 if uh, you've picked up one of the church Bibles. And if you want to get one, they're up the back there in the shelf. You can... Just go, feel free to go and get one to read it. But here we go. Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the tradition received from us. For you yourselves know how you should imitate us. We were not idle among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we laboured and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, but we did, sorry, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that some, of it, some among you who are idle, they are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you, be with all of you. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand, which is an authenticating mark in every letter. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, friends. My name is Chris. I'm part of, um, on the staff team here at OEC. Uh, I have the privilege of explaining this part of the Bible for us this morning, but let me pray. Uh, as Trevor said, it's quite a punchy bit of, um, uh, bit of the Bible, so let me pray that God would help us. Heavenly Father, give us your spirit so that we may read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your word this morning, so that we would hold fast to the hope of eternal life. Amen. 
Uh, This morning we're finishing our series in 2 Thessalonians. We took a bit of a short break so that our teenagers could go on youth camp and we'll hear all about that next week. So make sure you're at church next week to hear some interviews. But just to remind you that in our first week we saw that the church in Thessalonica was a young church in under serious pressure. Uh, We saw that uh, in chapter 1 that they were facing persecution. In chapter 2, we saw that there was false teachers, and then we also saw that there was this pressure being put on their heart, that as all these external things were pressing in on them, that they were tempted to walk away from Jesus, to not stand firm in the gospel and wait for him to return. And so Paul writes to them this short and punchy letter pointing them forward to the return of Jesus so that they would see their current day trials and struggles in light of his return. And in doing so, that they would have hope and stand firm as they wait for him to return. But, you know, there's a danger for them. With all these external pressures pushing in on them, how will they stand firm and wait for Jesus as a church? I mean, church for them could kind of become like this bunker where they just hold each other tight and wait for the apocalypse to happen. But Paul gives them a bigger and better picture of what it means to wait for Jesus to return. We saw it in verse 14. Have a look with me. Verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with them so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You see, Jesus has promised that he will return. And as we wait for him to return, there is a good and right way to wait. Which means there's a million other ways that it's wrong to wait for him to return. And here he encourages the community, the believers, the church, to encourage one another and support one another as they wait for Jesus to return. But why do we find these words so uncomfortable? Well, partly I take it it's the world that we live in. It was the Master's Apprentice, a band in 1971 that sung, Do what you want to be, be what you want to be. Okay, we'll see how 1045 goes with that. (laughs) We live in a world that says you do you. You go your own way and you do what feels right. But as lifelong disciples of Jesus, we want to walk worthy of the gospel. We want to live lives that honour and glorify Jesus. And we don't just want it for it ourselves, we want it for other disciples of Jesus as well. And so as we gather here this morning, we pray with one another, we sing with one another, we even take steps uh, to encourage one another to walk worthy of Jesus, which means there are times in which we need to show compassion and accountability to one another, to call one another out and encourage one another to keep walking worthy of Jesus. I mean, what do you do when you see a brother or sister in Christ, someone that you love, not living worthy of Jesus? Uh, Back in Sydney, my wife and I used to be a part of a church uh, that was in a wealthy part of Sydney. Most uni students lived at home during uni and were supported by their family and their parents 
in a very, very generous way, let the reader understand. <laughs> this resulted in a group of five Christian guys at our church finishing their uni degrees and not looking for work because of the generosity of their parents and the generosity of their church. This went on for a couple of years. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? They were youth leaders. They served at church. They led on all the Christian camps. But they spent most of their week playing video games and catching up down at the beach. It's not that they weren't able to find a job. They were unwilling. And see, the problem here is much deeper than just getting a job and finding work, isn't it? These five young men in the church weren't walking worthy of the gospel. They weren't waiting well for Jesus to return. I mean, parents, what would you say to these boys, sorry, men, (coughs) what would you say to these men as they led and taught your teenage boys at youth group? Uh, What would you say uh, in growth group as they struggled to understand and pray for people who worked full-time? What would you say when it came to the church finances, when they were constantly being supported to go on these camps? I mean, this goes deeper than a job, doesn't it? And so uh, we need to, as lifelong disciples of Jesus, we need to care about the discipleship of others as they follow Jesus. And that's our big point this morning. Uh, While on the surface it seems like Paul is just addressing the issue of getting a job, below the surface... Paul wants this little church in Thessalonica to build up and encourage one another as they keep following Jesus. And that's what we want to do here as a church. And so that's what we'll be looking at today. Lifelong disciples of Jesus care about the discipleship of others. Uh, Three points, they're in your outline. There's a problem in verse 6, a principle in verse 11, and and we get practical in verse 14. So let's start with the problem. Have a look at verse 6 with me. And now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother or sister who is idle and does not live according to the traditions received from us. The original word here in verse 6 is disordered. The original word uh, for live is actually walk. So it reads quite literally as keep away from any brother or sister who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions received from us. But this is not Monty Python and the Department of Silly Walks. The problem goes deeper than that. In Thessalonica, a group of Christians are not walking worthy of the gospel. They believe the tr- they, they know the truth in their head, and they believe it in their heart, but it's not matched in their lives. Have a look at verse 9. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us in fact while we were with you this is what we commanded you if anyone is willing to work sorry is anyone isn't willing to work he should not eat the idol are not walking worthy of the gospel they're not following Jesus in their lives because they're not willing to work now we need to be careful here because Paul isn't Paul is speaking about an attitude to work not an ability to work That's really important. You see, in our church family, there are brothers and sisters with disabilities, uh, physical and mental illnesses. 
Also, people caring for loved ones. Others, raising children at home, which of course is work, even though our society doesn't always value it as such. And these people are some of our greatest prayers, greatest evangelists, and serve in very big and bold ways. So to be clear, Paul is not speaking about those examples. The idol have a wrong attitude. They are able to work, but verse 10, they are not willing. And in this way, they're living disordered lives. They're not walking worthy of the gospel. You see, lifelong disciples of Jesus persevere by walking worthy of the gospel. Uh, And this is why Paul uses such strong, strong language. Did you notice that in verse 6? He says, we command you. In verse 10, this is what we command. In verse 12, this is what we command. You see, on one hand, he's a spiritual father who is deeply concerned for this little young church that he planted in Thessalonica. And on the other hand, He's an apostle of Jesus Christ who is teaching with the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, apostles don't happen that way today, but we have these teachings contained in the Bible. That's for us, but for them, if they don't follow the teachings of Paul and his example, then they can't expect to persevere in their faith and endure to the end. Paul is calling them to a life of integrity. So their whole life, what they know in their head and what they believe in their heart, would be lived out in their lives. Uh, Like a jumper that's knit together with a single strand of wool. Uh, My wife is obsessed with knitting. Um, She knits jumpers. She knits uh, the yellow beanie that I wear often. She even knits socks, which sounds weird, but if you have ever worn a pair of hand-knitted socks, you would know why they are so good. You see, there's a beauty and strength when a whole garment is knitted together with a single strand of wool. And there is a beauty and strength in the Christian life when it's knitted together with the single strand of the gospel. Jesus gave his life as a life of service and he persevered to the end. He served us by dying for us. Paul followed this example. When he was in Thessalonica, he, he, he didn't charge for, for preaching the gospel. He worked a job as a tent maker and he preached the gospel to serve them and persevere. And in doing so, they leave an example for all of us to follow. Not only do we ensure that our life is knitted together with the gospel, but in living it out, we persevere in our faith and endure to the end. Which means lifelong disciples of Jesus see the beauty of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of others. Friends, this morning, we've all come to church in different places. Can I ask you, do you see the beauty in the gospel? Do you see its strength? Are you seeking to knit your life together as one strand of wool so that you may persevere? We'll come back to that. Because what happens next is Paul kind of moves from the general specific of idleness and then focuses on this idea of work, which is our second point. Um, In 2008, Rupert Murdoch, the media mogul, gave a speech 
about the danger of idleness in Australia. He stated, The bludger has become an Australian icon, and we are in danger of becoming a nation of bludgers. Uh, Many, he said, he continued, many Australians will learn the hard way of what it means to be unprepared for the challenges that a global economy will bring. While support is required for those in genuine need, we must be warned of institutionalising idleness. Now, these are pretty strong words from Rupert Murdoch, uh, but note that for him, financial necessity, fi, fi, sorry, finances and working is a necessity because it gives security to our future. And this is how the world thinks about work. But the Bible gives us a bigger and better picture of work. Have a look at verse 11. Uh, for we hear that there are some among you who are idle, and they are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Uh, Paul turns from the instructions to the church and now directly addresses the idle. Uh, as they have no work uh, for themselves, they are not keeping themselves occupied, and they're meddling in the affairs of others. And so Paul doesn't mince his words in this beautiful play of busy, not busy bodies. He commands them to settle down and to make a living. Or as one commentator says it, to stop loafing around. Why? Verse 13, because it's a burden to the church. And it's stopping them from doing good and serving others. The idol are being a burden to those in church and bringing the gospel into question for those who are outside the church. I mean, in this beautiful way, we see throughout all of history, as when the gospel transforms people's lives, people who follow Jesus serve others and do good. In the Roman Empire, there was no um, social welfare system, but it was the early church built on the foundation of the teachings of Jesus and the gospel that led to the first schools, the first uh, hospitals, caring for people who had nowhere to live, uh, even helping those who couldn't work. But could you imagine if that failed to happen, if that stopped happening, if those in the church were being such a burden that the church could no longer do that good? And can you imagine inviting a friend to church only to hear them say, I know what happens at your church. They're just a bunch of loafers. No, thank you very much. So Paul says, work quietly, provide for yourself, and church, do not grow weary in doing good. Which means work uh, is not a source of financial security, but is a gift a gift from God that allows us to serve him and do good. Okay, no one dropped dead when I said that. I got to say again. Gift, a work, is a gift from God. Now, right now, I feel like we could kind of do a tangent of a four-week series of what actually the Bible does say about work. We don't have time for that, but let me give you quick four quick points. One, uh, God made us for work. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that humans are made and created in God's image to work. Two, God commanded us to work. Sin entered the world. It became toil, but that didn't stop the work. 
For those who are able, God commands us to work. It's even in the Ten Commandments. Three, God redeems our work because work is a gift and God brings dignity to our work. And four, God is at work in this world and invites him to um, uh, invites him us to work with him as the gospel is preached and God takes people from life to death. This is a work that is so important that Bruce and Kathy are going overseas for this kind of work. This work is so important that we should give our lives to this kind of work. It's work that's so important, it's even worth stopping full-time work and doing a ministry apprenticeship. And if you would like to do that, I'd buy you a coffee in the breakout space after church. Uh, John Stott summarises work like this. Work is the expenditure of energy in the service of others, which brings fulfilment to the worker, benefit to the community, and glory to God. Friends, which means work is not the problem. The problem is our hearts. Like Murdoch's quote, our world sees work as a means of securing our future. It's a necessity. Which also teaches us that our children's future, our own homes and our lives, even our retirement, is all based on our ability to produce and succeed. That security lies in what we can do and in our work, which leads us to either one of two responses. We either embrace this fully and we start to walk down the path of workaholism, or we reject it completely and we refuse to work and are able. But Paul says that work is bigger and better than that. As a gift from God, it allows us to serve others and to do good in this world. Consider all the ministries that we can do because of the generous support of people in our church. Consider the new community engagement that we've been able to do this year as a church because of um, a new position that has been um, started in people's financial giving. Consider all the people who get to hear the gospel in schools, uh, at youth group, church on a Sunday, in people's homes, because we are working and serving God. And so if work is a gift from God, it means that we need to pray that God will change our hearts. Not pray that we would necessarily work less, although that might, a change might be needed, but rather that we would have a better view of work because lifelong disciples of Jesus care about doing good and working for him. So tomorrow as you head into work, whether it's at school to teach or heading to the mines, whether you're caring for someone at home or raising the kids, friends, don't see it as a chore but a gift from God so that you may serve him and glorify others. Sorry, serve others and glorify God. That's an important thing. Uh, So that you can continue to do the good works that God has in store for you. Now, as we come back to kind of thinking about our church, let's get a bit practical about what Paul calls us to do um, uh, as we are a community who um, cares about uh, walking with Jesus, as lifelong disciples of Jesus care about the discipleship of others. Uh, Have a look at verse 14 with me. If anyone does not obey our teaching in this letter, 
Take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may not uh, may be ashamed, yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul instructs the whole church. Did you notice that? It's not just the minister or the growth group leaders or the CLT. It is the whole church not to mix with the idol. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul uses the uh, metaphor of yeast. If you made sourdough during COVID, you know what he's talking about. That is, a little teaspoon of yeast changes a whole loaf of bread. And when sinful behavior like idleness is tolerated, it shapes and changes a whole church. And so the Thessalonians should mix with these people so that they would see their shame. Why shame? Because when shame is correctly understood in the Bible, it leads us back to God. This is what Psalm 84 says. Cover their faces with shame so that they will seek your name, Lord. And 2 Corinthians 7, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. The shame is a conviction that when understood rightly should lead us to grieve our sin and return to Jesus. How do we do this? Well, Paul gives us a clarification in verse 15. He says, warn them, uh, he says, don't treat them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. In Matthew 18 and Titus chapter 3, we see that if sin persists and people can continue to refuse the the word of God, they may need further advice from leaders of the church and a clearer separation. The Thessalonians are not to mix with the idol, yet at the same time treat them as family, which I take it this means showing accountability, but also compassion. It's walking along brothers and sisters with open hearts and open Bibles and calling them back to the foot of the cross. You see, at the foot of the cross, there is only level ground. There is no care for status or achievements. And for those who humble themselves by trusting in Jesus and repenting of their sins, they are forgiven, restored, and empowered to continue to live a new life worthy of God. Now, in my church experience, before college and even after, I've only seen this done once in a church to a group that was idle. And this was for the five guys that I used to go to church with. Remember those guys that I told you at the beginning? Finished their uni degrees and didn't look for work because the generosity of their parents and the generosity of their church. They were youth leaders serving at church and on camps, but not living lives worthy of the gospel. So how did we put this into practice? Well, we didn't kick them out of church. We walked alongside them with compassion and accountability. Uh, I started a Bible study group for them, Monday mornings at 9am, because they had nowhere else to be. (laughs) And over the next 12 months, as we read the Bible together, and as they prayed for one another, and as they kept each other accountable for looking for work, God did a beautiful work in their lives. 18 months later, uh, we'd finished a quarter of the New Testament. And God had worked in all of them and even um, uh, provided jobs for them 
Some of them were working full time. Many of them moved out of home and God continued to grow them. As we walked together, showing accountability and compassion, God grew these young men. Two years later, one of them started a ministry apprenticeship at church, and the other four guys became his regular financial donors because they now worked, and in this gift from God, they could use it to serve others and do good. Next year, he'll start Bible college. Friends, can you see what happens when we as a community take sin seriously? When we not only look to live lives worthy of the Gospels ourselves, but care about others walking worthy of the Gospel as well. And Paul gives these instructions so that we, so that the Thessalonians and we together may continue to stand firm as we wait for Jesus to return. But I take it that we find this challenging because we may not be taking sin in our own life seriously. I think a lot of the time we fall into sin because we aren't thinking about it. We aren't questioning it. We seek sin or even pursue sin with a joyful heart. We take for granted the grace of God and we convince others that sin is small and doesn't matter to God. Sin might be pleasing to the eye It might feel good in a fleeting moment of happiness, but none of that is right. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, sin harms us, it hurts others, and it makes us hide in fear from God. It might be what you say or think about other people. It may be how you treat your family or treat others at work. It could be what you do with your girlfriend or boyfriend or What do you look at on the internet? If sin is not so bad, friends, then why did did God send Jesus to the cross? We need to take sin seriously. We need to stop mocking God and his grace and turn back to him so we can live lives worthy of the gospel. And from this new and transformed place, that we can lead brothers and sisters in Christ back to the gospel. So together we may stand firm as we wait for Jesus to return. Friends, let us be disciples who care about the discipleship of others. Let me pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity in 2 Thessalonians to consider the return of Jesus and how we may stand firm as we wait for him. We thank you for the gift of your church. We thank you for your bride. We thank you for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us to see the beauty of the gospel and to seek to live lives worthy of it. And as we do life with those around us and those who you have called us to walk with, help us to show compassion and accountability to one another so that we may encourage them to walk worthy of Jesus as we wait for you to return. And we pray this in his name. Amen.